everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks, based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 5, Quebec. Quebec is home to a very long-standing and rich culture that sets it apart from most of the country. The long history of French roots has shaped the province to be what it is today, and from part of those roots comes the folklore. For centuries, people have whispered about spirits in the forests and in the streets, from the days of the fur trade to modern-day houses. Some of these ghosts have become quite famous, while some of them are hardly known at all. Today, you'll get a good mix of the known and the unknown as we dive into the stories of the Québécois. Buckingham isn't a very French name for a town, but you'll find it in Quebec, just north of the Ottawa River, not too far east from Gatineau. There we find Susan, a woman living in an old Victorian home with her four-year-old daughter. One night, Susan had put her daughter to bed, stayed up for a bit watching TV, then decided to call it a night. She turned off the television and lights, double-checked that her doors were locked, brushed her teeth, and crawled into bed, although she wasn't very tired. She was having one of those nights where she lay there in the darkness, wide awake, her mind going a mile a minute, and trying to quiet down and drift off. Around 11pm, she started to feel her eyelids get heavy, and Susan began to nod off. Hey! A gruff male voice shouted in her ear. Get up! Susan jolted awake, but froze beneath the sheets. Who was in her room? The voice sounded again, more urgent this time. You need to get up now, it said. Go to the bathroom and look out the window. Hurry up! Susan did not need to be told twice. She jumped out of bed and crept into the bathroom across the hall. It was very dark outside, but as she peered through the blinds, she could quite easily see into her neighbor Charlie's kitchen window. That's where she saw a man hunched down low, moving through the kitchen. She watched, aghast, as the man pulled out a flashlight and began to look around. The beam crossed over the window and paused on Susan, looking back out at him. She screamed, and he turned off the light and retreated back into the darkness of the house. Susan rushed to the living room, grabbed the phone, and dialed up Charlie's cell. She knew that he was away for the evening. She informed him that someone had broken into his home and that he needed to come back right away. 
It was only a minute or two before Charlie's car peeled around the street corner and into his driveway. Susan ran out of her house as Charlie and a few of his friends got out of the car. They went into the home and found, thankfully, nothing had been stolen or broken. The burglar was gone, and the back door to the house was wide open. Charlie put an arm around Susan, who was still quite shaken. He thanked her for her watchfulness and for alerting him so quickly. Susan explained the voice that she had heard in her room was the only reason she saw the burglar in the first place. As she spoke, she realized she must have sounded like a complete idiot and buried her face in her hands. When she looked back up at her neighbor, he was grinning from ear to ear. I'm not surprised, he laughed. We've had a few encounters like that at home, always when something bad is about to happen, and we always catch it just in time to prevent it. From the sounds of it, it would seem that you've met our resident ghost. Do you know what you'll be doing tomorrow? How about this time next week? Next month? Next year? The future can be harder and harder to predict the farther you travel from the present day. I'm guessing that no one listening to this will know exactly what they'll be doing on June 27th of 2026. That is, unless they're very keen on experiencing a ghost. Mary Gallagher was a 38-year-old woman who worked in the Griffintown area of Montreal. She and her friend Susan Kennedy were seamstresses, to put it one way, who often entertained gentlemen. On the night of June 27th in 1879, the two ladies were escorting a handsome lad by the name of Michael Flanagan back to Susan's quarters at 242 Williams Street. When they arrived, they began competing for Flanagan's attention. Mary seemed to win out, and together she and Flanagan consumed their prize of three bottles of whiskey and conked out. Susan, in a fit of jealous rage, stormed over to where she knew an axe was kept and brought it back into the room. She raised it over the unconscious body of Mary Gallagher and brought it down with a thud. The axe was dull, and it took Susan a few tries to separate the head from the body, each thwack escaping the senses of Michael Flanagan snoozing beside the butchered woman on the floor. Now, this is the part where I'll remind you that this Susan and the Susan from the previous story are two very different people, and living in two very different times. In the courtroom, Flanagan protested that he never knew what became of Mary Gallagher, when he had woken up, she had been gone, and Susan Kennedy helped him out of her apartment. The jury believed him, and he was acquitted from the charge of murder. 
Susan was even luckier. Hear me out on this. While she was found guilty and sentenced to hang, that was reduced to jail time. The day that she was to have been hanged, Michael Flanagan's body was found in the Lachine Canal. Susan walked away the day her sentence was up. Twenty-one years later, in the year 1900, a passerby on William Street in Montreal witnessed a frightening sight. A bloody, headless woman was staggering down the sidewalk toward him, making low, awful moans. He turned on his heel and bolted. By the 1920s, it was through the spiritualist movement that they learned Mary Gallagher appeared every seven years on the street outside where she had been decapitated. In 1928, she was seen about six different times, once which was enough to reduce a man to his bed for days in a terrible fright. I'm afraid this episode was released 18 days too late for anyone listening to catch a glimpse of Mary Gallagher's headless spirit any time soon. June 27th, 2019 was the most recent date that she was said to appear. The next time she is scheduled to make an appearance is June 27th of 2026. Mark your calendars. Montreal's most famous ghosts and travel west to a cute little village to visit a rather anonymous spirit. Sometimes we catch just glimpses of other periods of time. There won't always be full-on stereotypical hauntings like we all know from books and movies. Most of the time, actually, experiencing a ghost will just be a moment, a snippet of time after which you're not sure exactly what you've seen. That's exactly what Mima, a lady from the Ile de Montréal, experienced a few years ago. Mima and her friend Brigitte were visiting the town of Saint-Anne-de-Bellevue, which is on the western tip of the Ile de Montréal. They had just left a second-hand bookshop and stepped out onto the busy street, Momentarily disoriented, they looked around to see if they could remember where they had parked their car. As they did, they noticed a girl walking on the sidewalk behind them. She was about 12 or 13 years old, and she wore a white Victorian-style dress with ribbons in her hair, definitely not something anyone else around was wearing. She was bent forward and walking very briskly with quite some determination. Mima and Brigitte figured she was likely attending some party, perhaps where all people wore period costumes, and yet the girl had such a look of focus on her face that they weren't sure if their explanation really fit. What was truly strange was that while the two of them had stopped to observe this girl on the sidewalk, no one else walking past seemed to even notice her, which was very bizarre considering her attire. Mima and Brigitte decided to continue walking to their car, 
got in, and drove away. After about a minute or two of driving, away from the town centre, Brigitte gasped and pointed out the window. There again in the sidewalk was the Victorian-dressed girl. How on earth had she covered so much ground in so little time? She had the same clothing on, and had the same focused, brisk walk. They watched, puzzled, as she turned a corner and disappeared from view. Eventually, Brigitte left Canada for France, while Mima stayed in Montreal. She came to forget all about that day in Saint-Anne-de-Bellevue, until one afternoon when she returned alone to visit the little town. She found herself in another quaint little store, and was in line for the cash register when the doorbells tinkled and in walked two people, a middle-aged lady accompanied by the very same Victorian-dressed girl. Mima let out a small cry of surprise. The girl was walking right up beside the lady, turned sideways and looking up at her as if she was in some kind of a silent argument. The lady seemed to take no notice, and a few times almost bumped right into her. Mima almost made up her mind to abandon the cash register line in order to go and speak with the two of them when a third person walked through Mima's line of sight, momentarily obscuring her view of them. When that person had passed through, Mima saw just the middle-aged woman. Looking around the store, she realized the Victorian-dressed girl was gone. It was 1961 at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. Pierrette Champoux, a well-known journalist at the time, was attending a conference. It was while she was walking through the crowds in the lobby that she ran into her old friend of many years, Emile Amel, another journalist. She was delighted to see him. It had been some time since they had really sat down and talked. They chatted for about half an hour, and then had to be on their separate ways. He smiled and gave her arm a squeeze as he left. Pierrette thought there was something sad about the way he looked as he walked off, and felt there was something that he had wanted to say to her, something important, but he never brought it up. Oh well, she thought. She would ask him the next time she saw him. As she went about her day, she realized it was odd that he never mentioned he would be attending this conference. Surely he knew that she would be there, and they could have made plans to meet up over dinner or something. Was there anything going on between them that she didn't know about? Two days later, Pierrette received the news. Emile had died the very morning she had talked with him. That was startling news as it was, but what truly shook her was that he had died six hours before she had talked with him in the lobby. Sometimes it's very hard to say goodbye. It might seem manageable until you reach the moment where parting is imminent. You know that once you turn around, you'll never set eyes on that person again, never hear their voice or feel their embrace. Somehow, saying the words goodbye have such a grave finality to them that it can be impossible to let them pass your lips. Emile had likely come to say goodbye, it seemed, but couldn't bring himself to say the final words. 
When thinking about ghost stories, most people tend to jump straight to pictures and images in their minds of what encountering a ghost might look like. Truth be told, most stories you're going to find are not going to involve sight. Books and movies are all based mostly around the idea of seeing ghosts, because that's easy to conjure in the minds of viewers and readers, and it tends to stick in their memories, keeping them up at night. Sounds, however, are just as much a part of ghost stories as sight, if not more so, and what could be more evocative of spirits than the old cliché of footsteps in the attic? Claudia and her sister grew up in Gatineau, but the house was not one that they looked back on fondly. She and her sister both agreed that it was haunted, although the rest of their family doesn't subscribe to that theory much. For Claudia, it's impossible that the house didn't have a ghost or two. She would hear things in the house falling at night, rolling off tables and clattering to the floor. They didn't have any pets. The house alarm would go off randomly, sounding when it wasn't set or when there was no one trying to break in. Claudia would sometimes hear the piano keys twinkling out in the living room at night, when everyone else was asleep, and this wasn't a player piano, if you're wondering that. It was at night that one of the more frightening things would happen. Claudia and her sister shared a bedroom, but only Claudia would ever see the shadow of a man in a hat enter their bedroom at night and just stand there, watching them. Her sister would always be asleep, but Claudia would be wide awake. She had a tough time sleeping in that room, especially when her sister was not with her. One time, however, Claudia had woken up to find the man in the hat bending down over her sister's bed. Her sister, completely asleep, was faced toward her with an awful, eerie smile on her face. Stop, Claudia whispered. You're scaring me. The man backed out of the room, and her sister's face returned to normal. One winter day, Claudia and her sister were home alone with their parents out at work. The quietness of the house was broken when Claudia heard loud stomping noises coming from the upstairs hallway outside their bedroom door. Annoyed, she was about to call out for her sister to stop when her sister shouted at her from the other downstairs room, Claudia, stop making that noise. Claudia froze. If she was downstairs, and so was her sister, who was stomping about upstairs? They called their father, who said he was too far away and too busy at work for him to come home. He didn't sound like he took them too seriously and hung up the phone. They tried calling their mother, but she didn't answer. It looked like it was up to the two daughters. Together, they crept upstairs and peered down the hallway. In the shadows, they watched for movement, some sign of there being an intruder. In Claudia's heart, she feared looking down and seeing the shadow man in the hat looking back. And yet, as they watched from the staircase, they saw nothing. They called out, but received no answer. They searched all the rooms, each and every closet and door. Nothing. 
the whole house was empty. The old tavern had been standing for 125 years by the time Jim Lawrence discovered it. It was still in good condition, and there was a small farm attached to the property, so Jim had very few reservations about moving into it in 1972. He would work the farm a little while slowly fixing up the old tavern and working it on weekends. One evening, he and his wife were cleaning up the downstairs main area when they heard footsteps in the hallway above. Somebody was pacing back and forth outside one of the bedrooms. The Lawrences looked at each other. They were supposed to be alone in the building. Quietly, Jim whistled to his dog, a big Labrador retriever, and made to climb the stairs to check on their intruder. When they got to the landing, the dog began to snarl, hair on end, and refused to climb any farther. Jim tried to get him to move, but the dog turned and ran back down to the main floor. Jim would have to perform the investigation alone. When he arrived at the hallway, the footsteps could no longer be heard, but to make sure, he checked every room on the level. He found no one. Over Christmas of that year, his wife's mother and sister were coming to stay, so Jim made up one of the upstairs bedrooms for them to occupy. The first morning they came down to breakfast, weary and annoyed. They hadn't got much sleep that night, and were upset that Jim hadn't told them about the other guest he was housing in the tavern. What other guest? Jim asked. They didn't know, but he was a restless fellow, always walking up and down the hallway all night. Jim Lawrence had no explanation for the footsteps and had begun to accept them for just sounds that accompanied the old place, when two years later a car pulled up in the driveway. Out got an older man, and Jim went down to welcome him. Now the man said he had no intention of staying a night, but wouldn't mind a cup of coffee. He was welcomed in, and over coffee Jim learned that he was a previous owner of the tavern from many years back, and had been in the area, so thought he would drop by to see the old place. He was thrilled it was up and running again. Jim found him to be a very agreeable old fellow, and offered to give him a tour of the renovations, at which the old owner was much impressed. As he was getting back into his car, the fellow paused, a funny look on his face. I have one other question, upon which you could ease my mind a little, he said softly. Of course, Jim would do his best to answer. Do you still have the ghost that walks up and down the hall at night? Jim Lawrence was floored. He stood, eyes wide and mouth agape. Before he could gather up some semblance of a response, the fellow chuckled. I see that you do. Goodbye. And with that, he closed the door and pulled out of the driveway. While researching ghosts in Quebec, one story kept cropping up no matter where I seemed to look. La Corriveau. It's one of the province's oldest and most famous stories, and I couldn't do an episode on Quebec justice without including it. 
Before I delve into that rather dramatic unfolding of events, there are a few other words which I would like to say. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published by Touchwood Editions in 2018, which you can find on Amazon or through Chapters in Indigo. This is one of the newest books in Barbara's vast archives, and I highly recommend grabbing it the moment you find it in the store. I know I say this every time, but this has been such an invaluable resource, and Barbara has been so wonderful to share her stories with us here. In that vein, Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2001 by Lone Pine Publishing and available online through Amazon and Chapters Indigo. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab, and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and very helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, I won't be waiting until June 27th, 2026 before listening to another episode of this podcast. I'll be tuning in the moment the next episode is released. Or something like that. I know these suggestions are pretty corny, but so far, no one's taken me up on them. I challenge you to think of something cornier to write. The music for this podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Thank you to Maria Len, one of our recent guides for Ghostly Walks, who furnished me with a great number of details regarding the story of La Corriveau, which you'll be hearing momentarily. Our next episode will be released Thursday, July 18th, and will feature Ontario. As much as I love looking into every province for stories, I have been eagerly awaiting the Ontario episode for one very special reason. We're going to have some guest storytellers this Thursday. Three guides and expert storytellers from Ontario's Haunted Walk will be joining us to share some of their favorite tales. I've already snuck a listen to what they prepared, and my friends, you are in for a treat. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2 o'clock p.m. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30pm for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Centre. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would absolutely adore to see you come out on one of our tours. What makes a monster and what makes a man? 
That was a recurring theme in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the musical production of which I was fortunate to see my brother perform in Chilliwack recently. When it comes to frightening figures, diving deeper into their past can open up a window into why they are what they are. Finding a ghost that is pure evil is very rare. Most often, these are tortured souls that are bound to the environment that was created for them. La Corriveau is a frightening but tragic tale that is entrenched in Quebec folklore and is a perfect end to our journey today. In 1733, in Saint-Vallier, near Quebec City, Marie-Joseph de Corriveau was born to Françoise Bolduc and Joseph Corriveau. At 16 years of age, she married a local 23-year-old farmer named Charles Bouchard. Together, they lived a simple life. They had two children. Marie-Joseph began to learn how to use herbs and natural plants as medicine, and she became well-known and respected in their community as a healer. After 11 years of marriage, Charles died suddenly. The doctors could not figure out the cause of death. The lack of solid evidence opened the door for rumors, the most famous being that Marie-Joseph had poured molten lead in his ear while he slept. I don't quite buy into this rumor that much, as there was no reason at the time for her to do this, and what's more is that even with the limited abilities they had then compared to the present day, you would think that the doctors would have been able to tell if a dead man had had molten lead poured into his ear. I imagine that would leave some kind of a mark. Anyway. Eighteen months later, Marie-Joseph married Louis-Étienne Daudier. Don't you start thinking she had fallen in love and just needed Charles Bouchard out of the way? Or that she was eager to move on from him? No, she detested Louis-Étienne Daudier, and so did her family. But with two children to raise and no husband to provide an income, she was desperate and Daudier took advantage as one of the only eligible men around. As a sort of rude and brutish fellow, Dodier wasn't the kindest to his new family, and Marie-Joseph's father, Joseph Corriveau, was not pleased with this. He would occasionally assault Dodier in the streets, to the point where Dodier got a restraining order against his father-in-law. Just two years into that awful marriage, Louis-Étienne Dodier was found dead in his stable with multiple heavy wounds to the head. The Corriveau family claimed Dodier had been kicked by his horse. The community surely didn't believe it, but they turned a blind eye. Dodier wasn't the most popular fellow in town, and Marie-Joseph still had quite the following as a healer. It would appear that the townsfolk were so loyal to her that she could get away with murder, or at least a justifiable one. That is, if the year hadn't been 1763. When I research stories to include in this podcast series, I consult some criteria that I've set for myself. Above everything else, I want to find a good story. That is the bottom line for most of what I include. What's the point in telling a story if it's not a very well-constructed or engaging tale? Aside from that, I try and look for stories that fit well into the format which I'm using. 
I also look for themes and concepts that fit nicely into a narrative of the province to keep a consistent tone throughout the episode, though I try to include some variety of styles of hauntings within the larger themes. One criteria I lean heavily toward is for stories that have a strong backing in historical context, and the story of La Corriveau would not make any sense if it were set in any other time period except for 1763. Here is exactly why. For the Canadian history buffs listening to this, you'll know that 1763 is a very important date. It is the year when the British took official control of the French territories in North America. Now, the British had held a position of power in New France ever since 1759, when they defeated the French in the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, but they were still greatly outnumbered by the French population in the area, and that population wasn't exactly the British government's biggest fan. The British, with their new governance in place, needed to flex their political muscles a bit. They heard about the death of Louis-Étienne Dodier and that his wife, a popular figure in the community, had likely been the murderer. This looked to be their chance to make a strong impact and showcase a bit of clout. A panel of 12 British officers, led by Lieutenant Colonel Roger Morris, investigated the matter, and Joseph Corriveau, the father, confessed to being the murderer with his daughter as an accomplice. Joseph was sentenced to death, while Marie-Joseph was giving 60 lashes and had a large letter M branded onto her left hand to mark her as a murderess. Things looked bleak for the Corriveau family. And yet, bleaker still they became. Just before his execution, Joseph told his confessor that he actually did not commit the crime. His daughter did. There was an immediate new trial. Marie-Joseph was brought in to defend herself, but did not speak English and couldn't understand a word of anything that was being said. This was even better than the British had hoped for. They used her history of working with natural healing methods against her and accused her of witchcraft. They quickly convicted her of murdering her husband. Joseph was released with a royal pardon, and Marie-Joseph was sentenced to death. Between the years of 1351 and 1828, the crime of petty treason was embedded in English law and defined as the murder of one's superior. This was the verdict if a servant killed their master or if a wife killed her husband. You can see how women were viewed during this time period. The punishment for petty treason was for the criminal to be burned at the stake, which would have been the fate of Marie-Joseph Corriveau had French civil law not been enforced at the last moment. Instead of a burning, she was hanged on the Plains of Abraham. This held the double purpose of providing a large stage for hundreds of people to watch the British exert their power, and of reminding everyone in attendance of what had happened on those very plains four years earlier. She became known as La Corriveau, and was placed in an iron cage and displayed at a busy intersection in town. Everyone knew the devil sat at the crossroads, and La Corriveau, the church insisted, was a devious witch in league with Satan. The French weren't used to seeing decaying bodies in cages as punishments, and that intersection became a very traumatic location. People would hear cries and moans coming from the cage at night. 
Children would burst into tears as they approached. A man fell asleep on the side of the road not far away and woke up to someone climbing on his back and clutching his chest. He ran, screaming, down the road until he reached the calvaire, a wooden cross. The moment he placed his fingertips on it, there was a howling cry from behind him and he felt the horrible creature relinquish its grasp. After two months of La Corriveau's bones being picked clean by birds, the public pressure became so intense that the governor had her taken away and buried. No proper Christian burial for a witch, however. She was dumped in a hole and covered up with her cage to serve as her coffin. That didn't stop her ghost from lingering at the crossroads in its cage, clinging to travelers' backs and chasing them down the streets. Years later, in 1849, her grave was unearthed during some construction. The cage and her bones were placed in a church cellar, but stolen. It next appeared in P.T. Barnum's traveling circus for a while, shipped around the continent and displayed for all to see. Thousands of people marveled at the bones of La Corriveau, still rattling around their cage, and they shivered at the thought of the ghost of this horrible monster clutching at them from behind as they walked down the road. Eventually, though, the exhibit fell out of favor, and the cage and bones were again lost, presumably for good. That is, of course, until the cage was discovered in 2011. Where on earth could this morbid artifact have been located after all these years? What sort of place would keep this set of bars meant to forever enclose an evil witch? Why, the Peabody Essex Museum, of course, in Salem, Massachusetts. The cage had been sitting in their back storage room for years, unidentified, as it lay in the midst of one of the locations famous around the world for its history with witches. The cage was loaned to the city of Lévis, where it still is on display. It's not very big, only five feet tall, a rather unassuming artifact connected with a bloody and sinister past. Walking up to it can be quite eerie, knowing what stories lie behind it, although the cage itself doesn't seem to be very frightening. In fact, it's rather pitiful. It makes one wonder, that's for sure. For the French townspeople in the late 1700s, what was the real fear? The witch La Corriveau? Or the British men who made this well-known and much-respected woman into such a monster.